Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Thank you very much to those of you who've been with us from the beginning. And for those of you who haven't, thank you very much for joining us. I do recommend you going back to the beginning of this series and checking it out from the start. Um, there's a lot of things in each episode that I don't want you to miss. We're marching our way through Israel day by day and sight by sight, and there's just so much in each episode, so I really hope you'll check those out. But today was no exception. We are on day 12, and this day had a lot of exciting things in store. Namely, we were going to be going to the Temple Mount itself. Now, we had walked around it, we've driven around it, we've seen it from a distance, but we've never been on top of the Temple Mount up to this point, and so it was very exciting. There was a kind of electricity, I think, with everybody, and not just because we were excited about it, but this day also came with uh, some rules and some regulations that we had to follow. And, you know, this was one of the things on the schedule that I was really personally excited and interested to see, but I was kind of hesitant thinking maybe it won't happen. You know, daily there are new things happening in Israel where where someone will do something dumb or they'll, you know, someone will attack someone or even in the newspaper, like the day before this, we saw in the newspaper, Christians descend on Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, someone had spit in the face of one of the Christians at the Temple Mount. So tensions are pretty much always high here. And this, for this reason, I thought, you know, maybe we don't get up there. Maybe, you know, it's towards the end of our trip in a way, well after the halfway point. Maybe something happens in the time that it takes for us to get up there and they close it down. Because any whiff of anything bad happening and they shut it down. They don't want to take any chances up there, either the Jews or the Muslims. So it's a very uh, tense area. Not that, not tense in the way that it's dangerous um, because no one really wants to, like both the Muslims and the Jews hold this to be a very important place. And so nobody wants to desecrate the ground. Nobody wants to cause a scene necessarily. Nobody wants to make anything like, no one wants to escalate things more than they need to be on this site because a lot of very devout people on both sides of the aisle really respect this place. So it's not tense like I thought I was going to be killed, but tense like there could be a fight that breaks out or some extremist could do something crazy with either Muslim or Jew. So there was a lot of tension in the air um, leading up to this. And on top of this, there's a lot of Jews in the area for the Holy Days. And so we had to get up really, really early just to kind of beat the crowds there. Otherwise, we might not have made it. And so we're told this all the day before. And so going into this day, we're all very excited, but we're a little bit on edge thinking, okay, well, what's what's going to happen? And we were also given the instruction that we were not to wear anything like remotely revealing. We're not supposed to wear shorts or uh, tank tops, things like that. That had been status quo for churches up to this point, but also absolutely no form of, of religion on us at all. So we don't carry Bibles up there. Um, other Christians wouldn't carry crosses up there if that was something you would wear around your neck. Um, Jewish people that go up are not supposed to bring any of their religious instruments up there. Um, even praying up there, if you're caught praying as a Jewish person, uh, you can be arrested for that. And so it was very serious, like don't bring anything up. And I was disappointed because, you know, up to this point, I'd carried my Bible and I'd put uh, little bits of dirt from each place in the Bible. So I was like, man, how am I going to do this? Um, in the end, it worked out, and we'll go through that in a minute, but it was pretty serious. It was like, this was the first time I saw our guides just be very serious with us. Up to this point, we were the ones asking questions like, is this safe? Is this okay? Should we be doing this or going over here? And the guides were like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Everyone makes such a big deal. It's nothing. But here on this day, going to the Temple Mount, they wanted to be sure that we were clear, no religious 
artifacts or instruments or anything used for worship. Um, we're going to treat this place as, as important and we're going to respect it and all the people there, not draw attention to ourselves, not break away from the group. And so all of this led to a kind of electricity. And I was even more excited to go up there on the Temple Mount. And we entered from kind of the southwest uh, portion of the retaining walls. We had to go through security again. Um, everybody, it seemed like this wasn't the first time we'd gone through any security to get into a place. Specifically, when we went to the Western Wall, we had to go through security as well. But this seemed just a little bit um, more serious. Everyone was a little bit more quiet. We spoke in kind of hushed tones. But all in all, we were excited and in good spirits. I noticed on the wall there, um, while we were waiting in line, there is an announcement and a warning. I'm going to read it out to you. It says, according to Torah law, entering the Temple Mount area is strictly forbidden due to the holiness of the site. This was written by the chief uh, chief rabbinate of Israel. And I thought this was interesting because the thing is, they've made an official decree that you are not supposed to go up there as an Orthodox Jew because uh, you might accidentally trample on the Holy of Holies. Because we're not exactly sure where all the placement of things were. And you just, rather than, I mean, it's it's very typical of like very um, orthodox and very conservative Jewish people to just, you know, it's like that's what the Pharisees did. They built a hedge around the law just to be safe. That led to other problems. But here, it's a very similar thing happening. Very, very similar um, principle where it's like, okay, we don't know where the Holy of Holies might be up there. And so just stay off of it altogether. We're going to make a law for us Orthodox Jews that you don't go up there. Now we did go and there were Jewish people in line ahead of us waiting to go up. And so it seems like not everybody follows this, but there were also other Jewish people in the other line to go just towards the Western wall. And they would kind of sneer and scoff at the Jews that were going up. And it didn't seem like they were friendly. And so our guides even pointed that out. They're like, yeah, see, these guys don't like those guys because they think they're going up there and they, they shouldn't go up there. And these guys think those guys are too serious and taking things a bit too extreme. And so even amongst the Jewish population, there's contention between what they think you should and shouldn't do. And so we're in line kind of watching all this happen. I mean, it was just really, really fascinating. But we did, we did go up. Um, our guides were nervous that... Perhaps this Orthodox group going up ahead of us might slow us down because they are typically searched quite a bit more than like American tourists. Um, like American tourists, they'd be searched and be like, yeah, you got to take this cross necklace off, but whatever. A Jewish person might sneak up there to pray though. And if they bring something up there to help facilitate that, then that's an absolute no-go. So they're searched a little bit more uh, rigorously. Like they were taking their shoes off and everything. We didn't have to do any of that. So, um, yeah, it definitely all built up to this kind of tense moment. But then once we passed through, the, through security, everything was totally fine. Um, we got to cross over. Um, we kind of went up a ramp to get into onto the Temple Mount itself. And from there, we were kind of overlooking to our left um, the Wailing Wall area. So there's that open area I talked about in a previous episode where we went to the Wailing Wall, but today it was absolutely packed. Like the when I went there, it was probably a quarter or a third full. And today on this day, when we looked over into it, it was so loud and it was just absolutely packed with people. So I was really glad we went the day that we did because we got to go up to the wall itself without having to get through that big of a crowd. And I really thought the crowd was big the day that we did go. So 
but it was just really impressive to see all these people um, gathering on this day. And both the men and women's side of it were absolutely just jam-packed full of people. And so we got to look over that as we kind of ramped up uh, over the Western Wall to get into the Temple Mount area itself. And when we got up there, we went off to the right. So it's kind of laid out. Um, if you're going up to the Western Wall side and you enter the Temple Mount area, the Dome of the Rock is off to your left quite a ways. And you enter much closer to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the Black Domed Mosque. And we kind of went over towards that area a little bit for our guide to show us um, some original pillar caps that they have. So like headstone caps of pillars. Um, from the the second temple that Herod the Great built. And they have these on display outside. You can actually walk right up and touch them even, which is impressive. Um, but they have gold leaf still remaining on them. I mean, it's beautiful marble, intricately carved, but they have gold leaf still on these, these pillar caps that you can see. And people are making jokes like, well, can I take some of it home with me, whatever. I don't think anybody was serious because even at this moment, we had made it up, everything was fine. But, you know, every once in a while you'll look over and see like someone just watching you or a guard, you know, patrolling. You're like, yeah, I don't want to take any chances up here. But it was really cool to see. I mean, you could touch history, you know, this first century or sorry. Yeah, first century um, stonework that perhaps Jesus and his disciples would have seen and obviously had been taken down by the Romans in 70 AD, but still the fact that it was here was just absolutely incredible. Still though, at this point, we're talking in hushed voices. There's not a lot of people around. We did make it there pretty early. And so it kind of felt deserted. It almost felt like walking on a college campus when nobody had gotten there yet, except for a few faculty and a couple students with early classes. And so even though we made it up to the top, we're still talking pretty quietly. We're still there's still a little bit of tension, you know, and so we're asking questions like, um, how does security work up here? And some of this I got from the guide, some of it I got from looking up later, um, but basically what is going on there is that there are nine entrances to the site of the Temple Mount, but eight of them are used by Muslims only, and they can come and go as they please. Now, Muslims can, if they want, go through the ninth entrance, but it wouldn't make a lot of sense for them to do this because this is the one that only non-Muslims can go in or like if you're a non-Muslim, this is the only entrance you have to go through. And that's the one that we went through and that's where all this heavy security is. So you're going to be searched while Muslims have um, free access to it. So this is part of the deal that was made um, and how kind of peace is kept is that Muslims have free access and they kind of can say who can and cannot go into the Temple Mount itself. But then Israel has security on top of the Temple Mount that makes sure things are peaceful while they're up there. So, um, and it's not to say that like there are Muslim uh, religious leaders there and there are people that are watching each entrance to each site. So if you, like me as a non-Muslim, cannot go into the Al-Aqsa Mosque and cannot go into the Dome of the Rock because I'm not Muslim. And if I tried, they'd ask me questions and it would be a pretty rigorous thing to go into these places. And this is what I wondered upon coming to Israel at all, because I knew that um, that had been shut down if you were non-Muslim, but I didn't know how they knew if you were Muslim or not. Because right now in America, I'm thinking, well, there's like a large population of people that do transition or convert to Islam. 
um, that are white or black or, you know, they don't have to look like an Arab person to be Muslim anymore. And so how would they know unless they're doing like racial profiling or whatever, which I guess a lot of it, uh, according to our guide, is that. Um, That's how they know who they're going to stop a lot of times. But then once they stop you, they will ask you a bunch of questions. And he told us a story about a person that was genuinely Muslim. They had converted to Islam. Um, They were white, but they had blue hair. And so they stopped this person and said, like, well, what are you doing trying to go in here? And they said, well, I'm genuinely uh, Muslim. I'm, I'm of the Islamic faith. And so please let me in. And they, they started questioning this person. This person was able to answer back in Arabic and answer their questions. And so they answered the questions satisfactorily, but they still just didn't trust this person that was white and that had blue hair. And so they said, nope, you're not coming in. And so Muslims have control of the Temple Mount's security um, as far as who goes in and who comes out. But then Israeli, the IDF, they have uh, control the security on the Temple Mount itself as far as um, settling disputes or if things are, if there's some sort of skirmish up at the top, they would be who's dealing with it. And then uh, Muslims again have security uh, of the mosques that are up there as well. So there's kind of this intermixing of powers depending on where you are and what you're doing at each place while you're up there. And so we asked those questions. I thought it was really interesting um, because I'd had those questions before going like, well, can't I just like I really would love to go into the Dome of the Rock just to see what's in there. I've known people that have been and were able to go in, but that was in the past. And so is there a way I could get in there? Um, Doesn't seem like that's the case. I, I don't think I'd be able to make it in. I just frankly don't know enough about Islam and I speak no Arabic. So I'd be called out immediately. But then once I was called out, I have no answer to their questions at all. So odds of me getting in there are not good. Um, I did practice a little bit of rebellion in the sense that uh, not being Jewish, I don't have to like rock back and forth with my prayers. I don't have to um, have any sort of religious instruments in order to pray. And so I did some silent praying while I was up there. Honestly, more just out out of a little bit of rebellion Um, towards being told I'm not allowed to pray up there. It wasn't like I felt that praying up there was some sort of special thing that God could hear me better. Nothing like that. But, um, you know, when you're told like no praying up here on the Temple Mount, I'm like, I'm going to pray anywhere I want to. So possibly the wrong attitude, but I did pray while I was up there and uh, nothing really, you know, nothing happened. There was no big, like for all the tension, for all the nervousness, for all the warnings, we were pretty well-protected, well-cared for. Um, the warnings were heeded and everybody kind of, everything went off without a hitch. So from the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the um, pillar heads that we saw, we then made our way over towards the left and towards the Dome of the Rock. And I guess I should say that uh, this is not just to the left side, it's left from where we were facing, but really it's on the northern side, closer to the northern side of the Temple Mount. And uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, when you're, we're walking to it um, from the south, going from the south side to the north side. And to get there, we had to walk through what used to be the Court of the Gentiles, which is really cool. Um, Because as you pass through, like our guides would show us, um, okay, so like right here, there would be this wall. And Paul talks about this in his writings, this dividing wall of separation that the Gentiles couldn't go past. And he told us, our guide did, Duran, 
He said, this is where the Gentiles would stop. We believe the wall would have been right up to this point and past this point, no Gentiles were allowed. And so to walk beyond that and to know that so many people that saw the temple in their period would not have been able to even get this close to the Holy of Holies. And it kind of felt like each step we took was like another progression further and further than some people that even were around to witness the temple in its all its glory at the different times weren't able to even get this close to it. So that was really neat to go past to where the Gentiles could go and then even past that to where only the Jewish people could go and then beyond that to get all the way up to the out um to sorry the dome of the rock itself that was fascinating cuz like man most Jews at the first century would not have been able to even get this close to it. So it's very likely that I got to be closer to the Holy of Holies than actually Jesus did when he was a physical human here in the, on the earth. So that was just a really like bizarre and kind of amazing experience. And as we're walking through this Temple Mount courtyard area up to the Dome of the Rock, it's just, it's like watching sunrise almost as this golden dome just kind of gets close, or you get closer and closer to this golden dome. And it's such a brightly colored, beautiful building that it really just kind of unfolds before you as you're walking closer and closer to it. And I got to say, I mean, it's a Muslim mosque. It has nothing to do with my faith at all, but it is such a beautiful building. Uh, It's got like marble on the bottom half and then bright blues and greens. And it's, it's got all this, um, this Arabic writing all around it that just looks, I mean, the language of Arabic is beautifully written. Like if you look at Arabic writing, it just looks gorgeous how it's laid out and it's, there's something artistic about it. So you can't really tell where it's like, this was an artistic design versus this was Arabic writing. And of course that golden dome on top, I mean, just absolutely stunning, reflecting the sun uh, coming from the East And so we approached it from the south side and walked around it towards the the, uh, eastern side. And we all got pictures there and uh, talked for a while about how things would have been laid out in the first century. Something I didn't know is that uh, on this spot originally during the Byzantine time, there was a cathedral here. And the Muslims that built the Dome of the Rock, which... Um, it's, it seems like it's a modern building, like the coloring on it and how pristine it is just makes it almost seem modern, but it's an old building. But when the Muslims built it, they did it in such a respectful way to, uh, kind of honor the type of building that the Byzantine mosque that stood there originally, uh, it's kind of like after that same model. So it's not in the model of, of typical mosques. It's it's a little bit different and it pays homage to the Byzantine cathedral that was here on this spot years and years before that. So I appreciate that they built it with respect to the Christian roots here at the time. I think that's, that's kind of an interesting cross-cultural moment um, like laid out for you in architecture. But it, this was finished in 691. In the 600s, almost the 700s AD. So this is a really old building, but they are, it's really just so well cared for because you look at it and it's just absolutely beautiful, absolutely pristine. And it was just quite a sight. One of my favorite sites, I think, in all of Israel that I saw. Not that there weren't other places that took me back in time to a further 
distance or something that I can't believe this is still standing. It's it's like, yes, this is a Muslim mosque. This is very different than um, a biblical archaeological site. And yet what this area means to the Bible and to the people that I consider the patriarchs and my forefathers in the faith, this is just an incredibly important spot. And I'm grateful that if there's going to be a Muslim mosque here, which, I mean, it's unfortunate in a way, because again, that's the least to do with my faith of all the three major religions. But if there's going to be a Muslim mosque here, this one truly is beautiful and kind of puts you in the frame of mind of maybe what Herod's uh, temple might have looked like. Obviously, it's not the same. This is a more um, angular, it's more, it's got that rounded top. And then Herod's would have been like kind of just honestly a square giant box building. And it would have been all in white instead of blue. But you see the gold and how shining it is, how reflective it is of the sun. And you can imagine that. It's just it's a, it's a building with a type of artistry and majesty that I think is reflective of what Herod the Great might have built. And so walking up to it um, did kind of put you in this state of awe that I really appreciated that still exists here on the Temple Mount to this day, despite the fact that it is um, you know, used for Muslim worship instead of for the Jewish or the Christian people. And it's actually more frowned upon that Jews or Christians would ever worship here at all. And then off to the eastern side as we walked around it. Um, so the eastern side, you remember, faces the Mount of Olives. So as we walked around it, there's another smaller dome in black with kind of a, a small, it's almost like a gazebo. And this is known as the Dome of the Spirits. And I'm not really sure why it's called that. Um, but apparently it stands over top of um, some exposed brick from the original temple ground. So I didn't actually realize this at the time. I wish I would have. I would have gone over and touched it. Um, because if you've listened up to this point, you know that going and touching original rock is kind of all that I'm about on this entire trip. Um, but that's what that's called. And we walked around towards that. And then as we looked up at the eastern facing portion of the Dome of the Rock, we kind of began to piece together what the temple would have looked like if we were facing it Um, with our backs to the east, so facing it towards the west. And our guide pointed out like where the altar would have been. A few of us brought up pictures of the original uh, second temple so we could like lay things out in our minds. And it was just really, really cool to get an overall picture of this this Temple Mount area, this this topmost portion of Jerusalem, and try and envision it as it would have been all the way back in the first century when Jesus and his disciples would have seen it. And so from there, we all took pictures and everything. I also, we were supposed to not separate from the group, but so close to the Dome of the Rock, I had to get as close as I possibly could. So I did walk up to it and just kind of touch the wall. And that's the closest I'll probably ever get to the Holy of Holies in my lifetime, Um, at least the physical location. Now, like theologically, I believe that the veil was torn open and I have access to God at all times. Um, which is a privilege that only the high priest had back in Israel's time. So that's an incredible thing. Um, and I don't want to, you know, fall in love with the physical at the expense of the spiritual. And I'm not trying to do that. But the physical site of the Holy of Holies is believed to be underneath that Dome of the Rock, at least on most accounts. And um, I believe that that's true. And so it's, um, yeah, just just really, really cool to have gotten that close to it and realize like this is probably closer than even Jesus and the disciples could have gotten to it in their time. So that was that was just really, really cool. 
After that, we kept on walking around the Dome of the Rock, uh, more towards the north side. The guide pointed out like where the Antonia Fortress would have stood, which is probably where Jesus' trial was held, um, at the northern side, uh, kind of like the northeastern corner of the Temple Mount. And so we walked around and he pointed that out to us. And then we exited the Temple Mount and walked down a few stairs. Uh, and so you can, I guess you can exit from a lot of different places because we didn't have to go back out the same way we came in. Um, but once we exited, uh, we were still kind of at the Temple Mount and we stopped just before exiting. And he showed us some stairs um, that were believed to be from Solomon's time. So all the way back to that temple. And that was fascinating as well. And you could see the difference in... Um, like first and second century, um, all the way up until modern time, uh, like the, the just the quality of the stairs. So some of them were really rough, and those are the ones that they believed were pro- possibly during Solomon's temple, uh, Solomon's temple period as well. So that was that was just really really cool. Um, and it's at this point that I decided to lean over and pick up some dirt. And all I did was reach into like a little. Um, there was a tree planted in the courtyard. And I reached in there, picked up some dirt and put it in my pocket. And so I got to put some dirt in my Bible from this period or this place. And that was really, really cool. Now I'm glad I had two pockets because from here, I still didn't have my Bible with me, but from here we walked, um, off of the temple Mount and then over to the pool of Bethesda. And on our way there, as we're walking, um, we stopped by this church. There's a cathedral there, uh, called the church of St. Anne. And this is believed to, be one of the places that Mary's mother was possibly from. So her mother's name in in Catholic or at least uh, historical tradition is that her name was Anne or Anna. And uh, this church is uh, at a spot that's believed to be associated with her. And so it's at least in memorial to her. And so we walked into this church. There was a um, like a bishop standing there, really nice guy, just like a, a kindly older man in a white robe. And, um, he was just kind of walking around, like talking to the guests and talking to people that were coming into his church and making sure everything was going well. Just a really sweet guy. But we walked in to the church and there's signs everywhere. And he told us like, there's no talking inside, but you can sing. And this was interesting. We've never seen this before up to this point. So we walk into this church and uh, it was it was beautiful. We've definitely seen, I think, more beautiful churches up to this point. But there was something clean and... Uh, serene about the whole cathedral here, very tall, tall building. And so we walk in and there's these people sitting on pews and they're all singing songs. And so we got to listen to them for a little bit and that was cool. But then they filtered out and it was kind of just our group in this cathedral. And so even though uh, it, you know, this church doesn't mean anything to me specifically, we thought it could be kind of cool if we would sing. And so everybody like a few people that knew me and know, you know, I lead songs in church, um, in Columbus, they were like, well, Michael, why don't you lead us in a hymn? And they asked before we walked in and I was like, it just felt kind of weird to me. You know, it's, it's not like I'm unhappy to do it, but I guess I just felt like, why do I have to lead it? Like it felt kind of showy to me and I, I didn't like that. So we walked in and I got like a lot of looks from people like, well, are you going to you're going to start one. You're going to start singing something. And so I eventually through enough prodding, people were like, come on, just, just do it. Like suck it up and do it. So I picked a hymn out of our hymnal and, uh, showed everybody that had their phones on them, 
um, which number it was, and I started singing. And there were a couple of us that sang, and it just echoed in this cathedral. Like, you really just don't get many opportunities to sing songs in a space like that that is built for singing. I mean, truly, they're building it for beauty uh, to remember old stories or old people or, you know, the history that's there, but also they're building it for functionality and a big part of Catholic or Orthodox or even uh, Jewish or even Muslim worship is singing. And so we're here at this, I'm I'm assuming it's Catholic, it could have been Orthodox, uh, but we're here at this cathedral that is built literally to be sung in and there's all these voices like being lifted up and, and singing. It was just such a beautiful thing. I actually, uh, one person got a recording of it. And so I included that in the description. If you've been following along with the pictures I've been uploading, uh, that video's in there as well. I'm hoping that plays well for you. Um, but I just picked a hymn that dealt with uh, the temple itself. There's uh, there's one line in this hymn from our church and it, it says, Yea, the bird has found its home built a nest to lay her young. Oh, that I may find thine altars. And this is just what I was in mind of as I was up there on the temple mount realizing, like, I just, I love that line because it shows God's provision and his care. You know, it's like, well, I can't enter into the Holy of Holies. Birds uh, enter in and like God cares for them and in housing them and sheltering them in that way. And just a desire for people to go and see the temple of God and to to stand before the altar of God. There's something beautiful in that. And it was really cool that I had just gotten to do something very similar. I was as close as I'll ever possibly be to that physical location that the psalmist was writing about. And so uh, that's the reason I picked that hymn. And we all sang it. And the last note, man, it just like rang and rang and rang. It gave everybody chills. So I thought that was... Maybe one of the coolest times I've ever sung anything uh, in my life. It was just one of the coolest experiences to be able to sing that song about the temple, about the altar of God, within that close of proximity to the altar of God, um, especially after being on the Temple Mount and being like forbidden to do any kind of worship at all. Um, even separating off from the group to go and touch the building had people like looking at me like, is this guy going to do something? And it's like, no, I'm just touching the building. Then I'll go back to my group. But it was cool to be able to just step just off the Temple Mount and be able to sing and worship God uh, this closely in, in such a beautiful setting as this cathedral. So that was really cool. And from there, it's just a few steps over to the Pool of Bethesda. So this priest kind of has a an amazing location where he's, you know, uh, taking care of his church, but he's so close to the Temple Mount and he's so close to this incredible site of the biblical story. And you'll remember in, in the book of John, this is when the Pool of Bethesda really um, get, gets its fame, you know, is this, this story where Jesus meets a man who's desperate to be healed, but he can't lower himself into the pool. He says, every time the pool is stirred up by the angel, other people rush ahead of me and I have no one to lower me into the pool. And Jesus says, take up your bed and walk. And he does this in front of Pharisees and, and there's a whole whole big thing that happens here. But it was really cool to be able to be there. And obviously, uh, at this time, the pool is dry. There's no water in it. Um, but it's said that there's five porches or porticos at this spot. And you can see like the remainder of them anyways, like how they would have been stacked up. And so that's really cool. Just very, very clear um, confirmation of the biblical story. 
But there's also, off to the far side, you can see where there are these mikvahs that are kind of up. Like they're they're built higher up than the pool itself, which is down below. And what some people think happens is that they have to drain these mikvahs every so often. So people will come, go to the mikvah, do some ceremonial cleansing, but the mikvah water can't just stay stagnant in that area. They have to drain it and refill it. So what some people believe is happening in this story where the man says an angel is stirring up the water. Now, potentially it is truly an angel or it's truly some sort of spirit that is doing this miraculous act. I don't want to discount that at all because I do think the supernatural world exists. But some people believe that what's happening is a person will come and drain this mikvah at the higher level and it will come and drain into the pool of Bethesda, stirring up the water. And when this happens, this is when the people um, get into the pool and hopefully they're healed. And so obviously it seems like there is a healing going on here. Otherwise, you're not going to have crowds of people laying there hoping to be healed. So something supernatural has happened here, but whether it's like a spiritual being causing something to happen physically in front of them, or God is working through the exchange of water from mikvah to pool. No one really knows, um, but that's just one explanation as to what's going on um, in this story. And people have different views and they debate it here and there. Um, I don't find it terribly relevant. I was just kind of enjoying being there. And so I got some more dirt from this area and put it in my other pocket so I could put that in my Bible later on. Um, But it was nice. It was just a peaceful time from going up to the Temple Mount. And we were maybe tense, but it was also just like so still. There was just not crowds. Like we saw the Western Wall and there's crowds of people just swirling like like a sea. And then to go up to the Temple Mount and there's like four or five people other than our group. It was just a very peaceful, meditative time. And that carried on through the church of St. Anne and then also into the pool of Bethesda as well. Um, And I'll post some pictures of that uh, so you can see what that looks like. It's it's fairly deep um, and there's some vegetation growing down at the bottom. But it was just, it was more, I think this site, despite not being able to like like crawl around the archaeological ruins, you're just kind of looking at them. This site for me um, was one of the coolest ones just to be at and to consider the story of. And so it's not like, I mean, yes, I got a better picture of what it looks like. And that picture is now in my head when I read the biblical story, but it was more so just a kind of a meditative, contemplative kind of day. And so that was, I thought, really, really cool. From there, we actually exited um, out of the eastern side, um, so towards the Mount of Olives, and we went out of um, the Lion's Gate or the Golden Gate. And there's a, there's a portion of it that's not blocked off. And you kind of walk downhill into the Valley of Kidron. And we met our buses there down at the bottom. Um, I debated on whether or not to say this because I, I wasn't trying to, like, I don't want to draw attention to myself. It's not like I did some amazing thing. But it was interesting that while we were walking down the hill, I was one of the last ones out. And there was a woman there just outside the gate of the temple who it was like an Asian woman and she was blind and she had a cup out for money. And I just gave her a couple bucks. It wasn't like I did some incredible thing. I'm not trying to like, you know, toot my own horn here, but it was just kind of a, it was actually more selfish than anything. And this is why I tell it to you. Um, this is why I actually debated. I debated cause I didn't want to seem like I was putting myself up, but it was a cool experience that I want to share. 
Um, and in that way, it's selfish because really it was just so fascinating to see beggars still at the temple, hoping for money, hoping for some sort of deliverance, hoping for some sort of relief. And so I thought that was cool. Um, not because I changed this woman's life by any means, but it was cool to, you know, see this person. It's horrible to say it's cool to see a beggar, but to know that times in some ways have not changed that much. And to, uh, you know, I couldn't offer healing to this woman necessarily. I couldn't, there wasn't a lot I could do, but a couple bucks, you know, it's like not a huge deal to me. I'm already planning on spending all this money anyways in a foreign country. So, um, it was just kind of cool to follow in the footsteps of people that have, walked by beggars and like given change or given alms to the poor, um, even though it wasn't any great thing that I did. So that was just kind of an interesting thing. And we walked on down uh, to continue to meet our bus. Now from here, um, our bus took us just straight back to the hotel. Uh, the, the Temple Mount was going to get busier and busier as the day went on. And for most people, this was going to be kind of more of a relaxing day. They could go into town and shop. Uh, they could walk. I mean, we're only, our hotel was only a mile from uh, the Temple Mount and like the whole old Jerusalem area. So a lot of people chose to stay back and just relax at the hotel. It had, we'd done a lot of touring, so I don't blame them at all. Some people decided to go into Jerusalem and just explore for themselves. And that that's pretty cool. I was a little bit jealous of that. And then some people um, decided, like I did with my dad and a few other people, they offered an additional tour to Shiloh um, or Shiloh, as they say in Hebrew. I don't know why, like so many other places, like I don't say Yerushalayim, but a Jewish person would say that, that speaks Hebrew. And yet I never feel like I have to say Jerusalem or Yerushalayim, you know, but with Shiloh, it felt like everybody there was like Shiloh or Shiloh, as they say in Hebrew. Maybe it's just because it's a shorter, quicker word to say. I'm not sure. Um, It'll always be Shiloh to me though. I hope some of you got that reference anyways, but I couldn't pass up the opportunity. You know, it's like, I'm in Israel. I'm going to say yes to as many things as possible. So a few of us did get the opportunity to go to Shiloh. And I thought it was amazing that it was on this day because we had just been to the temple Mount where the Ark of the Covenant had been. And now we're going to go to Shiloh, which was like one of the other few places in the world. The Ark of the Covenant has been, these were both cities of God at one point where God's people would come to meet and keep the feast days. And I got to go to the the newer one and the older one. And I just thought, wow, what a cool opportunity. Now, the thing is Shiloh is north of Jerusalem quite a bit, not so far that you're going up into Northern Israel or anything, but quite a bit north in the sense that you're going into the West Bank, like pretty deep into the West Bank and in not exactly the safest of areas. So the people leading the trip were a little bit hesitant to actually offer this because they didn't want anything bad to happen. They actually had to rent a separate bus that had armor plating on it just in case something went down. Um, They were just covering themselves, you know, and I understand that. They did a really nice job of presenting this tour as like, this is an opportunity, but there's risk involved. And I think this actually stopped everybody from wanting to just like rush to the stage when they announced it and sign up for it. Uh, it didn't stop me because it just I couldn't pass up anything that was going on. Um, but yeah, so I, I think like they they tried to warn people so that not everybody would want to go because they could only really rent one bus that had limited capacity. So their warning was 
it wasn't a lie. It was absolutely true. But I think it was delivered a little bit more prominently to try and maybe keep the numbers down just a little bit. So I was grateful for that because then the bus wasn't as packed and it was just a comfortable ride, you know? Now our guides were like, we don't need an armored bus for this. This is crazy. Like there's absolutely no need. We're going to a safe place. There's no problem here. Um, it's interesting because later on when there was an attack on Jerusalem, I wonder if the guides would have changed their mind knowing that all this stuff was about to go down. Um, but they felt very safe going here. They did not think there was anything wrong with this. We took uh, Edan with us, which was our guide from the first few days in Israel. And he was the archaeology guy. So I was really excited to be back with him and for him to lead us through this site. As it turns out, uh, we actually had a person keeping the feast with us that had come over and done some volunteer digs at this site in Shiloh. And so he did most of the explanation of the site itself. Um, but I still stuck close with Don as much as I could and just asked him questions about stuff and read all the signs because, you know, there's all kinds of different views on what's going on at different archaeological sites. Like every new archaeologist has their thing that they're trying to see if it's true. They've got their own hypothesis as to what happened here and uh, you know, there's a little bit of bias going on. So I wanted to get as many opinions as possible and just hear from as many people, especially, I just really respected Edan and he seemed to have a good head on his shoulders. Um, especially towards like provoking me to think about things. Cause he didn't always agree with my view of, uh, the accuracy of the Bible. So I liked that back and forth, but we did drive for a while, uh, to get to Shiloh. When we got there, it was really interesting because it seems like it was a really, um, it was a really big center for learning for the Jewish people. There were a lot of Jewish families here and it seemed to be set up in a way that while it wasn't as nicely excavated as some other areas in uh, Israel proper in the West bank, you know, it's like the, the restrictions and regulations are just a little bit less than they are in uh, the main body land of Israel. Um, they were still good. Like you could still tell what things were and it wasn't like it was run down by any means, but it was just interesting to me because even though that stuff was like a little bit more utilitarian, um, some of the things they had there for learning actually ended up being kind of better. And it might just be because they were for kids. Um, I saw like, there were like things that you could put your face in like pictures. There were little, um, signs where you could like unveil different facts that had pictures associated with them. So I saw a lot of parents bringing their kids around and like showing them different parts of this site and going through the history with them. And that was really cool. Um, not only because as it relates to Israel, I'm kind of like a child anyways, you know, I don't have these things ingrained in me from a young age, but it was just cool to see people, uh, whether religious or not showing their families, about their national history that includes what I would consider biblical history. So that was just a fascinating thing. Um, while we were there, the main thing I was curious about was trying to find um, where they would have had the Ark of the Covenant. And there's some disagreement on this. Uh, some say it's at the far end of the, of the camp on like a plateau area. There's a big wide open space of ground where they could have set the tabernacle up um, and then there are homes on either side of it, which kind of fits with when we read about Samuel, he's sleeping like right at the tabernacle itself. And he hears God's voice and he goes into Eli and there's, he just asks him like, well, what should I do? I hear this voice. And Eli says, well, listen for it again and respond. Here I am. And so it makes sense that 
Okay, you have this wide open space where you could put the tabernacle and there are homes here where some of the people, the priests that are working the temple could could work and, and live and still be within access of the tabernacle itself. Sorry, I keep exchanging temple. I don't mean temple. I mean tabernacle. Temple was not built yet at this time. Um, so some people say that. Other people say it's at the very center of everything. Um, they have a big building set up there that you can go in and uh, learn about the site. We didn't actually enter into the building, but it's kind of at the pinnacle of this whole campsite. And so some people say it was up there um, because it was central and there, the tabernacle was central to the worship and to the livelihoods of the people there. Um, they don't have really archaeological evidence for that necessarily, but it's not impossible just from a strategic point of view. And then other people say, like the the man that was there that had done some digging uh, on a volunteer basis, he was there and he said, no, I think it's more around this area, kind of in between that plateau and the center area. And he's basing this um, based on some instruments that were found, as well as um, the idea that the tabernacle began to take on more of a permanent form when it was at Shiloh. It was at Shiloh for a long time. And so while it still had that tent structure, they they believe that possibly they built stone, like a stone structure that the tent was kind of draped over. Now, there's not exactly biblical evidence for this. Um, there is one part, I believe, where it calls the tabernacle a temple instead. Um, so there, there, it could be legitimate that there was a more permanent structure. Um, I asked our guide about it and I said, so what do you think about all this? Because that middle area just didn't seem big enough to have the tabernacle, let alone have people come to worship there. So I was a little skeptical about that. I liked the plateau site. That seemed to make a little more sense, especially reading through why they think it's, it was there. Um, but our guide said, well, I think, you know, you have a movable tabernacle, Sure, to have it out on the plateau makes a lot of sense because it is uh, there's a space where everyone can gather to worship, and that's that's great. But it doesn't make sense to have it there all the time because if you're being attacked or uh, there's inclement weather or something is happening, it's good to be able to bring it in. And so potentially it moved from the plateau to the middle to the top portion in the middle of the t- of the town. So that was a pretty cool explanation too. Biblical evidence-wise, I, I don't know which theory holds up the best, but I liked the plateau area for it based on the archaeology that they've, the you know, the artifacts they've found there, as well as the houses being right next to the tabernacle area where it would have stood. I liked all of that, and that's what the site itself claims. So we walked around there for a while. Um, there's not a lot to report necessarily. It was cool to see, um, but really I was just going there to say that I've been to this spot uh, to have an image in my head of where um, Israel gathered at that time in like First and Second Samuel, where was their central city, their central meeting point, and that's it at Shiloh. So we kind of walked all the way through the city towards the back end, towards that plateau area, then walked back again. Uh, I found some little tiny pieces of pottery there that was kind of cool, um, just laying on the ground. So I picked those up and took them home. Don't tell the Israel army um, to come and get me though. I'd appreciate that. But yeah, there wasn't a lot more to say about Shiloh. It was kind of a quaint little place to be, especially with all the kids around. Uh, The other thing I would like to say before moving on to the next place is from here, um, 
because they had like a lot of Jewish learning, especially for kids, there were these tents set up. And at one of them, they were making uh, incense. They were grinding all these herbs and spices together like a KFC assembly line, except for instead of making chicken, they're making uh, incense. And they believe that what they're making was the same incense used by the high priest in the tabernacle. Now, I'm not sure where they get the recipe from exactly because it doesn't list it in the Bible, but I guess in the Jewish writings and the oral tradition that they've passed down, they believe that this is the correct recipe. And it smelled great. I mean, honestly, it smelled so good. Um, I really wanted to take some home with me just to say I had some. You know, I just thought it was a cool thing to bring home. And uh, I thought it was a cool place to be and, and just a good, I don't know, you know, you go to some place, you're like, what do I buy from here? to take home as a souvenir. And some things are just like, that's really kitschy. That's not really for me. A lot of people were buying that kind of stuff, like really very poorly made things from China that just had the look of Israeli, Middle Eastern kind of feel. I I just didn't really care for stuff like that. But seeing that uh, these people truly believe they have the correct recipe of the incense and that you can purchase it here, I thought it was really cool. Um, I was hoping to put some in my Bible when it talks about the priest burning incense. And so I went up and I asked the people that were grinding the incense, it was mainly kids, if I could do it too, which I felt kind of like a dummy. And they were like, oh, well, you have to have a wristband or whatever. I didn't know what they meant. So I said, well, I just want to put some here in the Bible. So one of them let me take a little pinch of theirs and put it in the Bible. And uh, it didn't really leave much of a mark. I kind of thought it would. Um, In some places when it had drier dirt, I had to spit in the dirt, which I know sounds a little gross, but I figured Jesus did it to heal people. I can do it to leave a mark in my Bible. Um, But when I did this with the incense, it just, it really wasn't working. And yet to this day, when you look in my Bible, if you go to that part in Leviticus um, where it talks about the priest using incense, you can still smell it there. So I thought that was cool. I was glad I got it. And then on my way out at the little gift shop they had, I bought like a little, almost like a baby food jar full of the incense. And I was really excited about that. Unfortunately, later it got taken from me when we went into Jordan, but that's a whole other story that I'll talk about another time. The last thing we did um, in Shiloh that was really, really cool was go and see the red heifers. Now, unfortunately, I thought that we were going to be seeing a video about the red heifers, so I wasn't that interested in it. Um, But we were actually going to see where they believe they have red heifers that can be used uh, to, uh, like, you know, in the old Testament, they talk about killing a red heifer. Like if you are, um, contaminated with death to purify something, you would take the ashes of a red heifer and has to be completely red. No two hairs next to each other can be of any other color. Their hooves have to be red. Their horns have to be red. Like everything about them has to be red in order to be acceptable for this sacrifice. And you kill it and you burn it and you take the ashes and you can purify um, a priest or someone who's been defiled by death. And so they believe they need these red heifers to institute the third temple. We talked about that last time at the Temple Institute, but this is a separate location where they believe they've gotten actual red heifers that meet the qualifications um, of the priesthood to be able to use them for this sacrifice. So it's kind of a big deal that they have them. Unfortunately, I was too busy talking to the kids, trying to grind spice in a pestle, but so I didn't get to see them, but all the rest of my group did, and they got pictures, so I've included some of those as well. Uh, Still a really, really cool thing. After this, 
Um, we left Shiloh and went back and they, they bus dropped us off at the Jaffa gate. And we only had one more thing to do this day. And it was kind of low key. It was a busy day up to this point and also relaxing at the same time. Like I said, even though the beginning of the day was kind of tense and, uh, we were kind of on our toes a little bit, it ended up being meditative and, and relaxing. So that was cool. We had a decent long bus ride to get to Shiloh and then just a little bit of walking around that site. And it was, I mean, weather-wise, just a beautiful day. So one more thing to do that day. We got dropped off at the Jaffa Gate. We had a quick dinner of shawarma again. We had, I think we had like shawarma maybe four times before the feast was over. Um, but I didn't really get tired of it. It was pretty good. And every single place, it was different. It was kind of funny. Um, one place we saw, it said shawarma and pizza. And I thought, what a weird mix. Like who wants specifically shawarma and pizza? And then later we talked to a few people uh, that went to dinner somewhere and they said, yeah, we couldn't find anywhere we really liked. I wanted shawarma really bad, but they wanted pizza and we we couldn't find um, anywhere that had pizza. And I said, man, that's crazy. I saw a site that had exactly the two things you're looking for and I kind of scoffed at it a little bit. But anyways, I guess it's for someone. But we went to the Jaffa Gate and then into uh, Old Jerusalem and we kind of, I mean, there's just people everywhere. And I've got some really cool pictures of just all the people milling around, like excitedly keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. And so it's cool as a Christian who keeps the feast uh, in America, there's not a lot of people that really know about the Feast of Tabernacles, let alone keep it. And so to be here in Jerusalem and to be surrounded by people that are keeping the feast, uh, not just by going to church or doing religious things, but by celebrating it. I mean, the feast days in the Bible are a time where you take your money that you've earned throughout the year, that you've set aside, that God's told you to set aside, and you go and enjoy your time with friends and family. And so to see all these people uh, keeping the feast in a truly celebratory way, that was another thing that that I took from this uh, was just, I need to celebrate more on the holy days. They're, they're meant to be celebratory. So I need to think of ways to just be a little bit more happy on these days, not just as another day of rest but it's truly a celebration that God commands me to enjoy. Um, So that's just a side note. Um, But the thing that we had to do from this point was we were going to be seeing a light show in the city of David. And this was something that at the outset, when we first knew we were going to Israel, my dad and I talked about it. And he just said, you know, I don't think we need to talk about anything. I just signed us up for everything. And if we want to do it or we don't want to do it, we'll figure that out when we get there. So I don't know what a light show in the city of David is, but we're going to find out. And if we don't want to find out, we'll find other stuff to do that's cool. So even up to this point, we're just like, I have no idea what this is going to be like, but we didn't have anything else to do. So why not go see a light show in the city of David? You're not going to get to do it again um, with all likelihood anyways. I mean, you know, I might go back. I'd love to go back, but maybe they won't do a light show again. Who knows? So we went and we stood in line for a long time. It was very, very crowded um, to get into this light show. And we got in, sat down, and it was just, honestly, even though it had been a relaxing day, it was so nice to sit and just look around at the architecture. It was beautifully cool outside. And they put on this light show and they just projected kind of this show with like music and images up on the walls of the city of David. And it was the story of David. So to be sitting in the city of David with ruins all around me, old Jerusalem around me, and to be told the story of David on this beautiful night. I mean, it just, it was really nice. And it wasn't like earth shattering. It wasn't the most amazing thing I've ever seen. But it was definitely worth seeing. And just an enjoyable thing. 
Um, so from there, I mean, that's really all there is to say about it. It was just a nice thing. Um, actually, I appreciate it more now. I've been going through First and Second Samuel recently in my own Bible study, and I just read through the part where David becomes king and he goes and takes Jerusalem, and it's written in like half a chapter. And I'm thinking like Jerusalem is like the city, you know, but in the taking of Jerusalem, it's like, yeah. And then he went and there were Jebusites there and he overtook it. It's like, it's just such a short account. But to think that all of the Bible, like leading up to this moment, Israel was like waiting to find their place. And then boom, they had their capital in Jerusalem. And to think of all that's happened surrounding Jerusalem since that time and all that's going to happen to Jerusalem uh, from now on, I mean, there's biblical prophecy surrounding this area. So to be sitting here on Zion, learning about David, who took this place as Israel's capital, was just kind of an incredible thing. And even now, I'm, I'm learning to appreciate it more and more as I study more into the Bible. So that was great. And uh, that was pretty much the last thing we did this day. After this, we... Um, the only catch was if you if you did the light show, you had to walk back to the hotel. But like I said, it was just a mile, and it was kind of a pleasant walk. We just kind of walked through uh, the streets of, of newer Jerusalem. I don't want to say new Jerusalem because that's still to come in prophecy, but the newer portion of the city of Jerusalem, we walked through those streets. Um, I got to talk with a different guide, Oren, who... I had originally, he was like my first assigned guide after the pre-feast stuff, uh, but I ended up switching to bus one with Duran uh, for a little while, uh, actually for the ma- remainder of the feast. Um, but Oren was just such a nice guy. So it was really nice to walk a mile with him and just talk about his life. And, you know, I mean, those of you that have listened to the podcast for a while or know me personally know, like, I couldn't not talk about the Bible or about Christianity or Judaism with him. So I just asked him because he seemed like the most religious of all the guides. I said, so what do you believe? Like, do you keep the feast days? And he said, eh, some, a little bit. My kids will, you know, we, we do build the, the Sukkot or the Sukkah. And uh, we do build that. And my kids eat out there. My wife and I don't sleep out there anymore. But sometimes they will, like a little camp out. Um, so some, I said, do you believe a Messiah is coming? He said, ah, I don't know. Now, everyone else I had asked that was Jewish at this point, they have pretty much given up on the idea. A lot of modern Jewish people have given up on the idea of a Messiah coming. And I think that's so sad, especially when I believe he's already come the first time and he's just going to be coming back. But there will be a time when Jesus Christ returns and they it says they'll look upon him whom they've pierced and they'll weep because they know who he is and what they've done and what they've been missing out on for so long. So, uh, while that's a sad thing, it's also such a an amazing thing that I'm excited to have happen. You know, all the Jewish people that had hoped for a Messiah who have since lost hope will see Jesus return and it, I mean, it'll break their hearts, but at the same time, it's like that's the first step towards reconciliation with him. And Oren just strikes me as one of those guys that like he will see if he is alive at the time of Christ's return. he would be one of the ones that's like, ah, okay, that's who I lost hope in. But I think he'll also be grateful that he was wrong, if that makes sense. So just in the way we were talking, it was like, I don't know if there's a Messiah, but I hope there is. I hope there will be one. And so I I appreciated his, his skeptic optimism, just one of the sweetest guys ever. And so walking with him and talking for 
that mile was um, a nice thing. And I appreciate it too because he's trying to walk all these people through the streets. I mean, we probably had like 50 people with us. And he's trying to get all of them corralled together, walking through crowds of people a mile through the streets of Jerusalem, trying to get us back to the hotel. And so we had to stop for times. We had to hold up signs. And I mean, he had a busy time just trying to keep everyone together, but he was still so polite and just entertaining my questions. And so I'm really grateful to him. I'd actually like to have um, all all the guides we had on the podcast at some point. I think that'd be really cool. Uh, Maybe just to talk about what's going on there now. Um, but that'll be a future time. We'll talk about that a different time, but for now, I hope you've enjoyed day 12. It really was one of my favorite days. It was just a, a beautiful day all around and we saw some amazing things. So I really loved it. This day holds a special place in my heart. Um, and yeah, stay tuned for day 13. We've got only a few days left on this March through Israel. And I really, really hope you've enjoyed it up to this point. I've really enjoyed presenting it and remembering all of this with you. It feels like I'm kind of on the tour with you as well. So Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.